So I want to confess, and some of you may already know this, but in some ways I am very much a goal-oriented person. Like many of us, I have lived my life working my way toward one goal after another. In elementary school, it was one day I will be in the band. Then in junior high, it was one day I will have my driver's license. Then one day I will go to college. Then one day I will go to medical school. Then one day I will get married and have children. One day I will be a pediatrician. One day I will be a priest, etc. On and on. There's nothing wrong with always having a goal in sight. The problem was that I always thought that I would finally be the kind of person I wanted to be when I reached this or that educational, social, or economic place in the world. Then I told myself I would have the time and the means to love people more fully, more completely, more the way God wants me to. Now, not all people are wired this way. Not all people are so focused on the end dream or vision. Instead, some people are process-oriented. Process-oriented people believe the journey itself is the goal. The process is just as, if not more, important than where one ends up. So, are you a goal-oriented or a process-oriented person? Well, for Christians, the distinction between goal and process isn't all that simple. The kingdom of heaven is both our vision for the world and the way that vision becomes a reality. It is both our future and the shape of our life in the here and now. It is both the end of the journey and the journey itself. It is both the end and the means. We Christians don't always do a great job of living as if this is the case. But there is a movement within the church right now that is attempting to bring the ends and the means back together again. And the movement is called Slow Church. The Slow Church movement is skeptical of church growth models that make Christianity into something that can be packaged and sold. It is skeptical of church growth formulas that promise efficiency, predictability, control, and quantifiable results. In fact, slow church is not a growth strategy at all. It's a way of reimagining what it means to be a community of faith rooted in a particular time and a particular place. For slow churches, it's all about sharing God's love with one another in the world around us. This work requires intentionality. It requires listening to the world around us, especially our own neighborhoods and communities and those right in front of us. And it requires great patience. In a world that prides itself on fast results and ever-increasing numbers, this way of being in the world can be incredibly countercultural. Of course, it's not the first time that a culture and the gospel have clashed. We see this tension throughout the New Testament. We repeatedly see existing social structures being upended by the liberation the gospel brings. The good news of God in Christ bursts all the old paradigms that try to contain it and try to make it conform to the rules of the world. We see this in our reading from Acts today. The passage begins with Paul and the others on their way to pray when they meet a slave girl with a spirit of divination. She's known for her ability to see into the future. And because many anxious people are willing to pay to know what their future holds, 
Her owners are raking in the money. When this girl meets Paul and the others, she begins to follow them, testifying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, maybe Paul could have taken a few hours or even one day of her incessant proclamation, but several days of it was more than he could take. Irritated and annoyed, he orders the spirit to come out of her, and the situation snowballs from there. With the spirit gone, the girl's owners can no longer make money from her prophecies. Religion all by itself may be one thing, but once money gets involved, once Paul and Silas start interfering with the economic interests of others, the gloves come off. The men drag them in front of the magistrates and accuse them of advocating unlawful customs. They are beaten and thrown in prison. But that's not the whole story. At the end of the day, our passage from Acts is actually all about liberation, about breaking down power structures that enslave us and breaking down walls that divide us. The walls of the prison come tumbling down in the earthquake, and a relationship forms between the jailer and Paul and Silas. The jailer becomes more than just one who sustains the power structure of first century Macedonia, and Paul and Silas become more than just another set of prisoners. They are all, in a sense, liberated. The slave girl is liberated, too, because even though we don't know exactly what happens to her after this story, her owners can no longer exploit her in the same way for their own economic gain. This is the pattern we see throughout the New Testament. Whenever the gospel is heard in all its glory, people are liberated, no longer enslaved by or reduced to what existing power structures say of us. We see this in Jesus' life. He showed us that we are more than our economic worth, more than the value placed on us by social designations, more than how much power we accumulate for ourselves or for others. The gospel tells us that we find our worth simply in being a child of God. And knowing that liberates us to see others as children of God too. This is ultimately Jesus' prayer for us in the gospel of John. When on the night before his death he prayed for unity. He prayed that we might be one. That we might see ourselves as one. Not because we all believe the same thing but because we are all children of God. I think it's easy to think of our unity in Christ as a purely mystical event, as something that's invisible, something that makes us feel all warm inside. And it is in some ways a mystery, but it's also much more than a mystery. Because being one with others is about being in relationship with the people right in front of us in all the grittiness of real life. We see this in the early church. Conversion or newness of life always leads people to serve those who are right in front of them. When the jailer accepts the gospel in today's reading from Acts, he washes the wounds of Paul and Silas and then brings him into his home and feeds them. In last week's reading from Acts, Thyatira, the dealer in purple cloth, is baptized along with her whole household. And the very first thing she does thereafter is to invite Paul and Silas to stay with her. When we live the way of Jesus, our hearts turn in love and hospitality to the person right in front of us. 
I'm not saying that this means that we don't also need to serve those who are hurting in other places of the world, like Guatemala and Syria, we do. I'm simply saying that the kingdom of heaven is a way of life. It affects how we live our lives day in and day out, here and now. And it calls into question everything we think about the way the world works, all the assumptions and attitudes that have enslaved us. After all, if the dead don't stay dead, maybe other things don't have to be the way they are either. Maybe extreme busyness isn't really a necessary part of today's world. Or maybe wealth isn't an indication of worth. Or maybe the poor don't have to always be with us. Maybe we really can take the time this very day to live a life of relationship and hospitality, to be the people God created us to be and love the way God calls us to love. The kingdom of heaven isn't just about the end of the journey. It is also the journey itself. So this is what I want to ask you or invite you to reflect on this morning. These questions. What are the thoughts and attitudes and assumptions and power structures that enslave us? What keeps us from trusting that we can follow deeply in the footsteps of Jesus here and now? And what might it look like for the Holy Spirit to liberate us to do that?